Right. A friend of mine used to always um, say good vach, a good week. Every Saturday night he would see that as the Rebbe was leaving 770, he would wish the Rebbe a good vach. And it was on a similar setup to this year. It was the 19th of Kislev was on Saturday night. And uh, he told the Rebbe, good vach. And the Rebbe said, good yantif. So in a similar way, tonight is the 10th of Kislev. So the appropriate greeting is not good vach. The appropriate greeting is good yantif. The Mittler Rebbe, like the Alt Rebbe, uh, was informed about his release from prison. He informed he was going to be released from prison on the 10th of Kislev according to one account, when he was reciting the Pasuk, just like the Al-Tarebbe, when he was reciting the verse, Hashem redeem my soul in peace, while he was saying that verse, he was then, before he began the next verse, he was told he was going to be released from prison, a similar thing happened to the Mitra. There was actually um, different accounts, according to one account, the Mitra was informed on Shabbos, on the uh, 9th of Kislev, but the Rebbe quotes another account which says that the Mitla Rebbe was informed on the 10th of Kislev when he was saying the Pasuk Palav Shalnafsh. And come here, my lap, Rosie Mirror, come here. And uh, this Pasuk actually has a greater connection to the Mitla Rebbe than it does to the Alta Rebbe because this Pasuk is in chapter 55 in Tilim. When we say this chapter, every single 10th um, of Kislev. So there is a strong relationship between this Pasuk and the redemption of the Mithra Rebbe. The Alter Rebbe's release was on a Tuesday, and the reason why the Alter Rebbe was reciting this verse was because uh, at times of trouble, our Rebbeim would say an extra, besides saying that Tilmas is divided according to the days of the month, they would also add and say, they would say Tilmas the way it's divided according to the days of the week. But the Mithra Rebbe and we say this verse peace uh, every year on the 10th of Kislev. So this Pasuk certainly has a strong connection to the Mitla Rebbe's redemption every single year and to every single one of us. So what's the relationship between this Pasuk and the Mitla Rebbe's release and to each of us? So this Pasuk says, God will redeem my soul in peace. That means that there's not any friction, there's not any hardship, but there's a clear redemption from any obstacles in a way that, without any resistance. So I'm going to share with you two stories on this theme, uh, which highlight how Hashem just rescues us through the tzaddik of the generation without any hardship in a, in a direct and clear way, as is highlighted in the teachings of Hasidus. It says in the Zohar, that there are three things that are bound with each other, the Torah, the Jewish people, and Hashem. And when we study the inner dimension of Torah, we connect the inner dimension of our soul with the essence of God. And therefore, there's, there's no friction, there's no fight, but the soul is released immediately. The first story I just uh, read this morning, incredible story. The Rebbe didn't usually perform the uh, honor of Sandik to hold a baby um, for the bris. But there were a few occasions when the Rebbe was a Sandik. And one of them was for the Chitchuk family. Ritzvihir Chitchuk invited the Rebbe 
to be the Sandik, I believe it was for Rabbi Yosef Chitschuk, Rabbi Zemesari, to Tzvas in Israel. And Rabbi Chitschuk um, invited the Rebbe to be the Sandik, and the Rebbe actually spoke about different customs of the previous Rebbe at this bris, uh, prior to the bris. One of them was that the previous Rebbe would turn his head away, so not to look at the baby, because it was hard for the previous Rebbe to see the baby um, in that state. And another custom that the previous Rebbe did at a bris was he would give money towards the education of the child. It's customary that the Sandik pays for some of the child's education. Uh, the Rebbe gave five dollars because the previous Rebbe gave, I think, 20 zlatis in Poland. And the Rebbe said the equivalent of 20 zlatis is five dollars. But the remarkable part of the story to me is that when the Rebbe entered the bris, I think it was 544 Kingston Avenue, if I remember correctly. The Rebbe, as soon as the Rebbe walked in, they put his hand, the Rebbe would always, never, instead of uh, putting his hand to his mouth, the Rebbe would usually just put his hand on the mezuzah. And that's instead of Kissing Mzuzah would kiss Mzuzah just with his hand. They would walk into the into the home where, where the bris was. The Rebbe just put his hand on the Mzuzah, and Rebbe said, it's, "The Mzuzah said very decisively, the Mzuzah needs to be changed." And they checked the Mzuzah, and the Mzuzah wasn't kosher. So the Rebbe just touching the Mzuzah was able to sense that this Mzuzah has to be changed. There's something missing the Mzuzah. So as is the story of the Mzuzah. There is a very famous story that um, has been written about in many different Chabad publications. And it's about the Rebbe reaching out to a neshama in Tasmania. What's unique about this story, besides the story itself, is that the Rebbe, I heard, wanted to actually edit this story for publication. And Dr. Michael Hasofer prepared it for publication gave it to the Rebbe, and somehow was lost. He wrote 30 pages on the story, and the Rebbe was so interested in the story that the Rebbe wanted to edit it personally before it was published. Unfortunately, that was lost, but on the other hand, uh, you see from the Rebbe's interest in the story that this is a really important story, and for reasons not known to, uh, to us, the story was not uh, edited by the Rebbe, but um, we do know a lot about the story because not only did the parents... I am Dr. Michael and Atara Sofer shared the story on many occasions, but Baruch Hashem, their children and grandchildren, great-grandchildren are, uh, are Hasidim and going in the path of Torah and Hasidus and uh, know the story firsthand. I want to share with you the vantage point of Dr. Michael Sofer's son, uh, Remordechai Sofer, who shared the story with the Kvarchavan magazine recently. He said that his, his great-grandfather moved from Russia to, um, to Alexandria in Egypt in 1880. He lived in Izmir. And he, they, they opened up a factory to make Turkish hats. Remember that, Rosie, the Turkish hats? Okay. They made the Turkish hats. And um, although um, Dr. Michael Sofer's father was religious and his family was religious, but he um, really didn't know too much about, sorry, although his grandfather was, was religious, he did not know at all anything about Judaism. The only thing he knew about Judaism was that on, on 
Passover, you have chicken soup with knedlach, with the matzah balls. And on Yom Kippur, he would sit all day in the shul on Yom Kippur that, with his grandfather. That's all he knew about Judaism. And he would go with, um, he went to university to study um, electrical engineering. And he was a valedictorian of his class. In 1948, he was a valedictorian of his class. And usually the valedictorian was chosen to have a private audience with the king of, of Egypt, King Farouk. But uh, because it was 1948 and all the Jews were at that time kept in concentration camps in Egypt because of what was going on in Israel. So instead of him having this private audience with the king, they gave him the loser's prize. They gave him just a picture of the king. Anyway, so he, Baruch Hashem, eventually um, left uh, after the war. They, they freed the Jews from this concentration camp and he moved to Israel and he joined the army. He became a senior officer in the Israeli army. He was in charge of the uh, south. That was his south, south of it, the south, southern part of Israel. And he met uh, Mrs. Atira Hasofer in this um, in this uh, in his in his period in his tenure in the army. Um, Mrs. Hasofer, Mrs. Atira Hasofer, she was a child during World War II. And she grew up in, in France. Her uncle was one of the top members of the resistance against the Nazis. And the Nazis placed a, a large uh, ransom on, on his head. And therefore he uh, arranged that all of his family should be spread out and no, no one should be um, kidnapped or tortured in order to capture him. So he put his sister into, Mr. Tara Sofer was, was brought up in a monastery and she moved to, um, eventually, after the war, she moved to Israel. She went to the very left kibbutz, uh, Shomer Atzair. She was one of the, if not, one of the first, not, not the first soldier, female soldier in the Israeli army. And she married Dr. Michael Sofer when she was in the... Uh, in the when he when he was in his period as in in working in the army in Israel, and at that time, Doctor Michael Sofer received a message from his sister who had moved uh, to Australia uh, that his mother wasn't healthy, and he should come right away to Australia because his mother wasn't healthy. So he went with his wife to Australia, and he discovered when he got to Australia that his mother was fine, one hundred percent fine. But what had happened was his sister didn't want him to live in Israel because she thought it was dangerous to live in Israel. And therefore she made this ruse and told them that their mother is, is sick. So he already came, he stayed in, when he came to Australia, he stayed in Australia and eventually moved to an island uh, off the coast of Australia, the country of Tasmania. And they moved to the city of Hobart in Hobart in Tasmania. There in Tasmania, he, um, joined a university there and studied statistics. He got a job as a professor as well. And um, the, one, of the, one of the oldest synagogues in Australia, actually the oldest synagogue in Australia, or Tasmania rather, is in Hobart. And it was built in 1845. This is a, it's, it's a, it became a reformed temple eventually. 
And the community um, had a rabbi at different times, different times they never rabbi. And the rabbi would lead the community in the Torah reading and the, and, and the services. But the rabbi moved out. And so they had a, uh, they had a, the, the president of the community, he took over. And then the president of the community moved out also. And so now they, they were left without anybody to uh, re- read the Torah. No one knew how to read the Torah. No one knew how to be chazan. So who's going to do the job? So they, they went over to Dr. Michael Asofer and asked him if he could possibly please read the Torah for them because none of them know how to read. So Dr. Asofer says, listen, guys, I don't believe in any of this stuff. I don't believe in Torah. I don't believe in God. I don't believe in Judaism. So you don't want me to lead your prayers. But they're like, listen, do you know how to read Hebrew? He's like, yeah. You know how to read Hebrew, then you're the guy. Please read the Torah for us. Now, of course, um, he um, didn't think this was a good idea, but they pressured him, and he he did this. He he read. He came to there, and he read the, he read the Torah. He was a chazan. And every Shabbos, he would go there by bus or by motorcycle, and he would lead their prayers. But as the Torah says that uh, one mitzvah leads to another mitzvah, and it's impossible as a Jew that you know your soul's connected and you do a mitzvah. Gets you into it, so he um, he started feeling closer to Torah and mitzvahs, and so did his wife, Mrs. Atara Sofer, and they were actually plagued by this question: Is there or isn't there a God? And um, she, Mrs. Asofer, um, used to pray to God and ask God, "Listen, God, if you're there, can you give us a sign? If you, I'll know you that you're there if you give us a sign. But if not, how am I supposed to know?" That time, Rabbi Chaim Gutnik al uh, one of the Rebbe's emissaries to Melbourne, got a letter from the Rebbe, where the Rebbe says, asks him to go visit Tasmania. He visits Tasmania, he comes to the synagogue, and he gives a class in the synagogue, and he asks everyone in the synagogue, is every member of the community here? And they said, yes, except for one. The Hasofers didn't show up. So he went to the Hasofer house, and he spoke to Atara and Dr. Michael Asofer for several hours, several hours. And in that meeting, he was able to answer their questions and their doubts. And they felt that they really got the MS. They really got the truth finally. And what they, they, they didn't know, they found out years later, was that the only reason that Rabbi Gutnik visited that, the, that, um, that city in Tasmania was only because at the Rebbe's behest. Apparently, that uh, Hashem had sent the answer that yes, they should. He's around, and uh, they took this as a sign. The Bichayim Gutnik's arrival to, to teach them at the Torah. They took this as a sign that yes, Hashem and Hashem heard their prayers. And Moshe, the Rabbeinu of our time, the Rebbe, had sent Rabbi Gutnik to be the one to uh, to bring them close to Hashem, nafshi, redeeming their souls in peace, children and grandchildren, great grandchildren. In the ways of Torah and Chassidus. Now, Dr. Michael and Mr. Tara Sofer, um, they move shortly afterwards to Canberra in Australia. They moved to Melbourne, eventually moved to Sydney. And they came close to various Hasidim that the Rebbe sent to Melbourne, like Rabbi Yitzhak Groner of Shalom, Rabbi Zalman Gurevich. And they learned from the great Hasidim there all about Torah and mitzvot, and that's what inspired them in, and uh, brought them to keep Torah um, religiously. Mrs. Hasofer was a psychologist, 
And one of their audiences of the Rebbe, Rabbi Michael, Rabbi Mordechai Sofer, is saying the story about his parents, says he doesn't, he's not familiar with all the audiences that his parents got. He has many letters that the Rebbe sent to them. He, doesn't, he knows that the Rebbe sent them on various missions, but he doesn't know all of their audiences, and he, but he shared one of them. It's good to hear the story firsthand because it's not a story you would believe if you didn't hear the story firsthand. But before I go to that story, I just want to conclude that Rabbi Mordechai Sofer said that how does he, what's his earliest recollection of his parents really getting into Judaism was coming to home one day and seeing his mother on the floor with two buckets of paint, red paint and blue paint, and she was coloring the uh, various parts of her kitchen, red and blue, for milkshakes and flayshakes, for dairy and meat. Anyway, so so they are in an audience, the Rebbe, and Dr. Hasofer had, was invited by a university in Malaysia to, um, to, to teach there for a year. And they were discussing with the Rebbe if they should take on this position. And the Rebbe told Mrs. Atara Sofer, who was a psychologist, that she should learn in Malaysia, she should learn a kosher meditation. Unfortunately, there are many kinds of idolatrous meditation, like TM and many other kinds of idolatrous meditation. And the Rebbe wanted her to learn about meditation and how to make a kosher meditation. The Rebbe said there are a lot of Jews who are into this, and, and a lot of it's based on idol worship. So his mother indeed learned about meditation. And in order to understand meditation properly, they met this Buddhist priest. And they said, they, and they told him exactly what they wanted. They, they don't want to learn all the uh, religious stuff about this. They just want to learn the, the uh, therapeutic benefits of meditation without all the religious idolatrous stuff. So this priest was apparently a very intelligent man. He says, listen, I'm willing to teach you this on condition. I know you Jews have something called Torah. You teach me Torah and I'll teach you meditation. And he did. And Dr. Michael Asofer taught him Tanya. So they stayed a year there. And after many years, and after they had left Malaysia, a woman from England came to Malaysia for the same purpose. She came there to learn about meditation. She wasn't interested necessarily in kosher meditation, but she wanted to learn meditation. And she met that exact same priest, and he discovered that she's Jewish. So he told her, listen, you're wasting your time learning meditation from me, because you Jews have something a lot greater than that. You have Hasidus, you have Torah, you have mitzvahs. That's what you need to learn. And he put her, her in touch with Mrs. Atara uh, Hasofer. So we really don't know what our mission is, where we go, what we're meant to do there. But there's no question about it that each of us is an emissary of God to spread the Torah wherever we go. And the power of the today, the power of Yud Kislev, is that we're able to reach out to another Jew. And we have Nafshi, like in this story, how the Rebbe just sends this, this emissary. And just like in the first story, just touches the mezuzah, and all of a sudden, the mezuzah, the, the, mezuzah, the Rebbe realizes the mezuzah has to be changed, and so too the Rebbe feels the cry of this woman in, in Tasmania who is searching for a connection to Hashem, and Baruch Hashem comes home. Hashem Shalom should come home with Mashiach Tzakeinu, and we should realize until the Mashiach comes, who we are, who we are, who we are sent by, 
and how we are given the ability to also reach out to others and part of Hashem Nafshi and bring them home peacefully. L'chaim, l'chaim, sheikh now. A good yontif. Amen. Good yontif.